Hi folks, welcome to the Queers Hug Trees podcast. This is Allegra. And this is Emily. Um, we're here to host a collaborative exploration of the links between queerness and environmental justice. We're asking what it means to be queer in the environmental justice movement, how we can address barriers to queer environmentalism, and what the environmental movement can learn from queer justice struggles. Our title puts together two previously derogatory terms for gender and sexually diverse people and for environmental activists. We're really here to reclaim those narratives, reclaim those terms, and go on a disruptive knowledge journey to queer climate, biodiversity, and other environmental conversations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Queers Hug Trees podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Allegra. And I'm Emily. Great. So we, uh, yeah, are starting this podcast to talk about the links between climate justice and queer justice. And this week, we're going to be looking at how queer folk experience heightened housing vulnerability and particularly in the context of climate change. Awesome. I'm psyched. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself before we start? Absolutely. Uh, so I'm Emily. Um, I am a white settler living in Toronto. I'm originally from the west coast of Canada on Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh territories. Uh, and I am a student at the University of Toronto finishing up my final year and heading to law school next year. Awesome. Sweet. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah, my name is Allegra. I use she, her pronouns. Um, and I'm also a student currently in Toronto at the University of Toronto, also in my final year. And the future is a little less certain for me. <laughs> so I thought I'd start with a little bit of just like background around how, first of all, the climate crisis and the housing crisis are related. I'll just go over just the amount of... Um, how destabilizing the climate crisis is to people's housing right now in terms of hurricanes, wildfires, floods. I don't know if you remember the flash flooding from the summer uh, in Halifax that happened, but they had a massive amount of torrential downpour over like 24 hours, um, and 150 people were displaced in those 24 hours. So yeah, just keeping in mind that these kinds of really extreme weather events are what lead to a lot of housing destability for people and yeah force them out of their homes yeah i mean increasingly it's also super visible with sea level rise i think we can look oh, to yeah. like vanuatu um the maldives other small island developing states and like there there's nowhere more obvious than when your house is literally getting flooded from rising sea levels mm -hmm. to show how climate change deprives people of what they've considered their home yeah and i mean we're both from bc where the wildfires have been getting really really bad lately um, I know that you've been caught in one before, which is very scary. And yeah, I'm sure everyone, at least living in Canada, has knows someone who was displaced. I don't know. I know the Northwest Territories got really badly hit this summer as well, as well as the East Coast. So yeah, a lot of people have personal connections to these kind of climate-related disasters and displacements. Um, I'm going to be talking specifically about Canada in this episode, but yeah, if you have stuff that comes up from your international knowledge, that is awesome. <laughs> cool. Um, so I thought I'd just start with that as like a, yeah, a little peek into what we'll be talking about today. But most of the research that I did for this episode was concentrated on how queer youth are affected in the housing crisis and how queer youth become particularly vulnerable when they become homeless. 
Yeah, so I thought I'd start off with some of like the hard facts in the research. Uh, basically, of course, there's limited research on this, so there's just not enough at this point, but there has been some um, since like around 2000 up until 2023, is, I think is the most recent study that I was looking at. Um, and basically, it just shows that teenagers who identify as LGBTQ are more likely to end up homeless than their heterosexual or uh, cisnormative counterparts. Uh, in 2000, there was actually a study that found that 25 to 40% of homeless youth in Canada are in the genderqueer, uh, gay <laughs> bubble. So that was a statistic that was referenced in a lot of the papers that I was reading. I found a really intensive report by the Trevor Project, um, which is really, I don't know, have you heard of that organization before? I think I've read the report. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, cool. Okay, cool. Awesome. Sweet. Um, so this was a report that was done in the U.S., but they were they surveyed 34,000 LGBTQ youth across the country, so a really massive um, endeavor. And they found that 28% of LGBTQ youth reported experiencing homelessness or housing instability at some point in their lives, which is just a crazy high number for that size of a sample. Um, and 40% of those respondents reported being kicked out or abandoned directly due to their LGBTQ identity. Um, so I think that speaks to the kind of situation and the specific vulnerability that we're talking about when we talk about uh, queer youth. Yeah. I mean, there is also some research that's been done by the Homeless Hub um, that specifically talks about how queer youth at large are at risk of homelessness, but then like very, very clearly the rates go sky high when it comes to trans and gender queer youth. And so I think this is also a really important opportunity for us to think about how like within um, LGBTQ2IA plus vulnerabilities, so often we talk about it as a monolith, but it's not. It's it's much more dangerous sometimes to be trans and to be non-binary and to be two-spirit especially than it is to be like gay or bisexual. And that's not to invalidate the experiences of everybody, but like, you know, as a white person as well, like I don't have a compounding element of vulnerability because like black trans women disproportionately are the ones who are subject to massive brutality. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, these stats just really put that in context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so from all those stats that we're reading, it's kind of hard to conceptualize, but basically just recognizing that a, a huge part of what drives um, this group of youth to homelessness has to do with their LGBTQ identity. And so I feel like that's one aspect of this issue that's really important to highlight. Someone who came up a lot in my research is a doctor called Dr. Alex Abramovich, and he's actually a scientist working at ChemH here in Toronto and a professor at U of T, uh, which was really cool to hear. I always love finding important people who, I, I don't know, <laughs> are close by, which is really exciting. And so he was actually writing for the Homeless Hub, that you, the organization that you mentioned. And he wrote a chapter called No Fixed Address, Young, Queer, and Restless in a book about youth homelessness in Canada. So he really got into how family conflict is one of the number one causes of youth homelessness. And as LGBTQ youth, coming out is a major contributing factor to family conflict that results in homelessness and housing vulnerability. One important thing I think he emphasized in this chapter is that when these youth are forced to leave their home, they're dealing with for their survival. They're dealing with finding safety and shelter and food, but they're also coping with all of these 
feelings of rejection and trauma and fear. And so a lot of the research really intersects like how is this housing instability then compounded by like very intense mental health struggles. And so it's just another facet that I'm leaving your home just would, what's the word like? Yeah, compound. I don't yeah. know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that for anybody listening who like didn't grow up queer, um, one important thing to kind of start to understand is that if you don't have a family who talks about queerness a lot or in like really open and accepting ways, you have no idea how they're going to react when you start to share your identity. Um, And like, even if they would be open, you don't know that. And so there is this risk that they will shun you. Worst case scenario, they can kick you out and, and literally deprive you of your house. But like a lot of queer youth don't know, and this can lead to extra mental health challenges. And then if you're accidentally outed by people around you, that can lead to family abuse, that can lead to homelessness. Um, And that's the thing that I think a lot of people go through is trying to figure out whether it's safe to come out to your parents. And some people don't have that option. You know, for some people, it's not a choice to stay in the quote unquote closet. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that's an important part of this. And the mental health impacts that come from like hiding and shutting down a whole part of your identity aren't things that just go away and that makes every other element of it worse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I was looking at in terms of the, the factors that really start this problem. Um, And then I was starting to look into the factors that continue this problem, um, specifically shelter access for queer and trans youth. I, I think it's really good that we're having discussion about this also because this is not something that I was learning about before this episode. And I feel like, I am one of those people who grew up thinking that, ah, in Canada, we have amazing gay rights and trans rights and everyone is equal, um, which I was really lucky about. So I'm glad that we're discussing this now. Yeah. So in uh, Dr. Ebermuch's report, uh, basically he was interviewing a lot of staff and a lot of youth from uh, shelters across Toronto. um, And... He does report finding a high levels of transphobia and homophobia in these shelters. One thing I found really compelling about the chapter that he wrote is that he did include a lot of uh, quotes from the youth that he was interviewing, and I just wanted to share one. This is from a homeless youth who is 22 years old, so that's how old I am. Um, And they say, a lot of these guys, they do not want to go to the shelter. That is most of them being stubborn and staying on the street because they are afraid to be in the shelter. Do you know what they do to you in the shelter? And then he goes on to describe um, one of the, some of, yeah, just descriptions of assault that he and his friends have experienced. So we're definitely, when we talk about this, we're not only talking about, you know, the political ideology or the fear or anything like that. This is like physical um, danger that people are being put in when they experience transphobia and homophobia in shelters. Yeah. I mean, like in high school, when if, anybody ever addressed homophobia transphobia it was often depicted as like oh this is like verbal abuse this is Mm, bullying it's not it's assault a lot of the time and like last week in toronto we had a a trans rights rally and like 
it's visceral assault from the police. If you look at the degree of pushiness and like verbal abuse and overt just like hostility that the police express towards trans rights protesters compared to, for instance, white straight climate protesters, um, it's not even it's not even um, comparable. Yeah, like we were we were taking up half of a sidewalk, totally legal, and the police were, you know, pushing, shoving, yeah, um, actively forcing people off the street, sometimes threatening arrest, sometimes making jokes about us. One of the jokes they made was that they were going to get the van, quote unquote, which is a callback to very very serious oh police brutality, um, and so like it's. Jeez. It's real abuse, and it's not just real abuse in hidden spaces. It's over institutional yeah. abuse. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, I did not know that happened. That's so scary. Yeah. That's really scary. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really. I think good that's something know. that people need to like yeah. understand is that there's a really powerful slogan that a lot of um, queer and trans rights protesters use that is like, "We keep us safe." Yeah. Um, and what that means is our police don't keep us safe. Mm-hmm. When we were protesting against Daniel Smith, who was attending an event at the Albany Club, a huge alt-right, super rich club in Toronto, the police were on the side of the far right. You know, like they were yeah, protecting keeping, and yeah. they were even like smiling at, siding with the people who are attacking trans rights. Like the police don't keep us safe. We keep us safe. I think that connects in that as climate change gets worse, there are increasing mm-hmm. amounts of studies that show that like conflict within societies, wars, um, those kind of things will get worse. Mm-hmm. Um, migration, climate refugees, all these kind of things are predicted to by some scientists um, increase military crackdowns and police crackdowns. Oh, right. And you know, like who's on the front line of crackdowns BIPOC individuals especially indigenous people in Canada and BIPOC queer people especially uh, trans folks Mm -hmm. like this is this is very clear who was Mm -hmm. gonna get hit first Mm -hmm. yeah and I guess on that note I was reading through one of the studies from 2016 that was published by uh, Tara Lyons and Andrea Crusi along with um, a number of other scholars I think there was about 10 of them and they were did a really in-depth look into the experience of trans women and two-spirit people into accessing housing services in downtown Vancouver. So the participants in the study reported that they were able to access drop-in centers, but when they're trying to access longer-term healthcare centers or housing shelters, they found that they were being excluded to a much higher degree. And as I described a bit before, the danger from that is really evident. Um, a lot of the discrimination is based on gender expression. So I thought this was interesting because we did talk a bit about this in one of our other episodes, but just this whole idea of being able to police someone else's gender and when women show up and two-spirit people show up to these shelters that are deemed women's only spaces and then they have to perform a certain level of femininity in order to access the space. So one of the participants described that she called into a center um, and she was asked over the phone, do you at least look like a girl? By one of the staff members who was sort of vetting whether or not she could access the space. So it's that level of gender policing coming from the staff where these people are approached with a certain like level of apprehensiveness and that they have to then prove their womanhood, 
particularly through, yeah, their appearance and their perception from staff um, that I thought was quite alarming to read about. Yeah. And then that also connected to, you know, like the study they looked at the relationships within the shelters and found that both from the staff and from other people accessing the shelters, the the trans women and two-spirit people who did appear more feminine the way that they presented generally got a lot more respect. And with that respect does come more access to the services that they're providing. So it's really something that, I don't know, like the way that this study was describing it, is that something like wearing makeup or dressing in like certain colors or in like certain clothing, those things that seem perhaps in like the cisnormative sphere as really non, uh, yeah. not influential have a huge effect on these really <laughs> necessary things to live, like healthcare, like a roof over your head and that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like even in, I guess what we would call like co-ed spaces, I think it just, it's very important to talk about how binarized public spaces are. Bathrooms will often be women and men's, you know? If you are even like trying to access public services and you're not in a shelter and you're going to a public rec center, you know, many of them have women's and men's washrooms. The spaces that we create for people to access for free in our society have so many barriers to entry if you don't conform to that social expectation of being a quote-unquote woman or a quote-unquote man. And, like, it just erases every identity that doesn't fit within expectations of what gender should look like and what performance of gender should look like. I don't know. I think that it, it's it's a very weird experience to have to pee really bad and see that there are only two washrooms and to have to make a decision about like what gender you're going to present in order to access one of those washrooms. So I don't know. I think I would encourage anybody listening to kind of start to interrogate that if you haven't already. Like when you're accessing public spaces, where do those gender binaries come in and how are cis norms reinforced over and over again? Yeah. Assumed and then reinforced by our... Except, or what is it, our acceptance of the assumption. Yeah, like, who is left out by this quote-unquote social safety net, you know? In Canada, we talk about, like, the social safety net for people who, like, need it. But when you consider how it is actually structured, it's structured for people who fit within our ideas about who deserves help and who deserves support. And sometimes queer people don't fit within that social expectation of who deserves help and who deserves support. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, I mean, reading through these, I yeah, I didn't want to um, like obviously in these studies, there's there's descriptions of like very severe danger that these people are put in that I didn't really feel comfortable sharing on air. But for example, one of the trans women in the studies, you know, going to a men's only shelter was just not an option um, based on her previous experiences, and then the women's only shelter would not take her or had all these policies and policing that she had to go through and so she would just avoid shelters altogether um again putting herself in another i mean not putting herself but she's getting put into another form of danger having to yeah find shelter elsewhere yeah Mm -hmm. so bringing that back to climate change then um maybe let's talk a bit about how this actually compounds climate vulnerabilities absolutely so the main two things that come up when we talk about um, homeless vulnerability and climate change is 
what do people do in heat waves and what do people do in the freezing cold? And a lot of the times the answer to this is they seek help in shelters, in warming centers, in cooling centers. But as those, as all those factors are showing, these kind of public services can be really inaccessible to trans people and to queer people. Yeah. I mean, also just as a thought exercise, like when you have massive heat waves and our current shelter capacities and our current cooling center capacities are at their maximum in a binarized setting, like who is going to get kicked to the curb or denied access first? Well, it's probably going to be the people who have to pass already or who are asked on the phone, do you look like a woman, right? Like it's, probably going to be the people who are already subject to implicit biases and like we really have to think about that because it's going to happen we're at a level of climate change where it's here and it's happening and it's going to get worse unless we act right now and it is still going to get worse because we are pumping carbon into the atmosphere on the daily which is a scary thing but it's not as nearly as scary for me someone who can probably pass if i needed to than as someone who can't yeah one of the um the statistics that I read was that in cold weather, um, 72% of hypothermia cases are people experiencing homelessness in temperatures warmer than the, the extreme cold weather warning, which is actually at negative 15 degrees, which I thought is crazy. If you're spending the night outside at negative 15 degrees, that's... Uh, yes. Do you know why negative 15 was chosen? No, and then I looked it up. So that's what his study said from, sorry, from Dr. Stephen Huang in uh, 2020. But I looked it up on the provincial government website, and I think it's negative 30. So there's some discrepancy. I'm not entirely sure. And then the federal site said something else. But basically just saying that that is, and when we say extreme weather warning, that's when warming centers get opened across the city. So that's like the threshold. When it's negative 15 in Toronto, they'll open warming centers to people. But when it's negative 14 or negative 10 or negative 5, they're not opening the full capacity for the warming shelters. Um, And then, again, we're experiencing all these issues trying to access shelters. And yeah, as you're saying, the people who are going to be denied uh, services are the people who are discriminated against. Yeah. Yeah, and so I, I don't know. I was just thinking about that a lot in terms of the recent freezing weathers that we've had in Toronto in the past couple months um, when I haven't wanted to go outside and walk to class and then I'm learning that, you know, we're seeing like 20% of the hypothermic deaths that we see in Toronto are from uh, people experiencing homelessness, which is really, really scary to read about and also not surprising. And I mean, like, to speak about this from like a perspective of someone who is literally sitting in their home right now, I have no idea what it's actually like to be on the ground in negative 15, 30 degrees without a roof, you know? Uh, so we can think about this. It's a totally different thing to actually be able to speak from experience, and that's something we, we can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say when we think about queer vulnerability to climate, the people who are going to be hit first by any climate disaster are folks who don't have somewhere to shelter in place. And when you're getting evacuated by a wildfire and people are going to knock on doors to tell you there's an evacuation warning, if you don't have a door to be knocked on, how are you going to get that information? Right. And for queer youth, that is so 
fucking dangerous. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? That was everything I have. Do you have any? Well, I think one thing is that this is a very pressing issue. So I'd like to kind of talk a little bit about what people can do to learn more or support or get involved. So in your research, were there any particularly important articles that you would suggest people read or resources that people should look into, places people should donate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Homeless Hub that I think we both mentioned was a really good resource for like Toronto uh, specific research and uh, as an organization. Um, and that was also where I read Dr. Alex Abramovich's chapter. So I think... Yeah, if people have time to read something like that, we could link it in the bio of um, the episode. And there was also an organization called Rain City Housing um, out in Vancouver that kept popping up in news articles as a really great supportive resource for LGBTQ youth. I think for me as well, um, one of the most important things that I would encourage folks to do if you're coming at this from a, like, you want to take action is there are queer liberation organizations in many cities um, that I would suggest joining uh, to find a safe space where you know you're able to fight with the community for your rights yeah find community find people who keep you safe I don't know like all I can say is that it's scary and we need to find hope in each other and and yeah we're awesome and we're amazing and we're beautiful so let's fucking fight yes let's fight there's people doing really good work out there um and that always brings me a lot of hope and i know you're one of those people so thank you (laughs) (laughs) with that note note, uh thank you all so much for listening i hope uh yeah i hope this was informative and again if you have any feedback our email is queershugtrees at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we'll see you later. See you next month. <laughs> Bye. Bye.